Hi, everyone. Welcome to this edition of Roar Lions Radio. I'm your host, Bill DeFilippo, joined tonight by my co-host, Matt DeBear. Matt, um, I don't know about you, but there is something a little bit more sweet about beating Michigan than anybody else. Uh, I think I might be the poster child for that, living <laughs> 20 minutes from Ann Arbor and and literally surrounded by by maize and blue and green and white. And um, getting, getting it back-to-back weeks this season is, is an interesting experience that I, I will report on uh, a week from now after the Michigan State game. But it is, it is a much more enjoyable day walking around southeast Michigan uh, in Penn State colors after a win over Michigan. Oh, God, I, was, I felt very satisfied walking around Syracuse, New York in Penn State colors. So I, I, I completely understand where you're coming from. And, of course, if you're listening to this uh, and you don't know what we mean, why? Uh, but, of course, Penn State took down uh, Michigan on – Saturday night in Happy Valley, uh, 28-21 to 21 to move to 7-0 of the year, 4-0 in conference play. Sean Clifford, 14 for 25, 182 yards through the air with three passing touchdowns, added a score on the ground. A bit of a weird game for the Nittany Lion rushing attack. We'll certainly talk about that in a bit, but if we're talking about big-time players, we have to talk about K.J. Hamler, six receptions, 108 yards, two touchdowns. Uh, the other receiving touchdown was caught by big old Pat Fryermuth, and then on the defensive side of the ball, Micah Parsons, 14 tackles. Huge, huge night for him and Tariq Castro-Fields, pitching in an interception. Uh, Matt, I think when people hear that 28-21 to 21 number, or when people see that 28-21 to 21 number, they assume that it was a tight game throughout. They will, they'd probably assume that the most indicative part of the game was what happened for basically the last two quarters, two and a half quarters of it. So what I want to do is I want to break this game down to the first quarter and a half when Penn State looked to you, looked to me, looked to everyone with a set of eyeballs like they were about to just run Michigan off the field, make this the fourth game in a row where a team has blown out the other in this series. And then get into later in the game and where some issues might have popped up. But to start, let's talk with the good. Uh, Penn State uh, at the 7.22 mark of the thir- second quarter scored a touchdown to go up 21 to nothing. Uh, the Nittany Lions had one, one, two, three, five dri- drives to start the game. Three of them were touchdowns. What was working for Penn State as they were able to get into that groove offensively? And then what was working for them on the defensive side of the ball when Michigan could not do anything against this Nittany Lion defense? Well, I think the, the the offense, it's pretty simple. They were hitting the big plays. And if you watch the game on on the ABC broadcast with Chris Feller and Herb Street, they'd spend a lot of time talking about that's what Don Brown defenses do. They're going to load the box. They're going to attack the line of scrimmage. And they're going to leave their defensive backs on, on one-on-one islands and bet that Either their defensive backs are going to make the play or their pass rush is going to get home before you have a chance to beat them deep. And that's what Penn State did. All three touchdowns um, through the air were were uh, over 20 yards. Um, and even the, the Sean Clifford rushing touchdown was set up by a big play. So for the first, well, you were, like you said, the first quarter and a half, it was they were they were beating Don Brown's defense at what he's giving you um and on the other side of the ball i don't know if there was anything um specific that they were doing i think they were certainly fitting off the emotion i think as a defensive player it's probably a little easier to to use that crowd emotion to 
to be more aggressive, to be um, having that attack attacking mindset. Um, you know, as I'm looking here, Michigan went six plays on their first drive of punt, then a three and out, then the turnover on downs with the uh, the John Reed pass breakup that was the you know maybe could have gone for defensive pass interference. I, 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 I'm sorry, Matt. I'm going to interrupt real quick. Penn State got away with one on that. I'm. I think you and I probably. John John Reed played coverage. Uh, we'll call it snugly. Yeah, and I I think you know, watching it live, it looked like you know, one of those bang bang plays that could have gone either way. You slow it down on the instant replay, and like, yeah, he was there mm-hmm. early. Um, and I'm just going to put it out there now. I thought it was a pretty you know for all intents and purposes, you know, with, with what you come to expect in college football, it was a pretty well officiated game. I think both teams have calls that have benefited them and both have ones that would they'd like to see go the other way. But um, I thought that it was a combination of, you know, really playing an aggressive style, getting in Shea Patterson's face, limiting uh, Charbonnet and the Michigan running game on the ground. Um, I thought Michigan uh, certainly had some self-inflicted wounds, drop passes, uh, missed blocks, things like that. Um, and I think to get a little ahead here, what changed on that side of the ball was I think there was a little bit of, I don't want to say complacency, but I think you get up 21, nothing. I think the natural instinct is to not let the big play beat you. You know, make, make a team go 10, 12, 15 plays to score against you, make them go the length of the field. And Michigan started to execute. They weren't dropping those passes. Charbonnet was hitting the holes. Um, I thought this was the best game Shea Patterson's played for Michigan in a long, long time. Mm -hmm. I think it took him a while to settle in. Um, which is a credit to the crowd and, and also the Penn State defense for making him uncomfortable. Um, but I think it was it was one of those feed off the home crowd and do exactly what you want to do. Um, and it felt like they were one one or two plays away f- for another quarter, you know, going to the middle of the third quarter maybe, where they were just one play away from, if they could have gotten it to 28-7, um, then the game would have felt more over, you know, three scores in the second half just feels a lot more comfortable. You know, you wonder what Michigan's mindset is at that point. Um, and like I said, they were real close to doing it, whether it was the, uh, the long pass to Dodson, um, great throw on the run. That was just what six inches out of reach for him. Mm-hmm. Um, the opening kickoff of the second half that got called back on, on a couple holding calls. Um, it just felt like, um, and I know I'm, I'm answering the next question here that they just were just off from making those plays that they were hitting early on, on both sides of the ball. All of a sudden they weren't getting home. They weren't affecting Patterson as much and they were just missing those deep shots or, or Clifford was holding the ball just a hair too long um, or just, you know, making the wrong read on, on the RPO look. Um, and th- there's, there's a hundred reasons we'll get into that more, but that's kind of the, the, the game notes summary in in sixty seconds or so. Well, I the everything kind of comes back to me to the very first play of the game, where Michigan on the first play of the football game got had to burn a timeout because it because they couldn't get a play in, like they were going to get a delay of game, like the crowd was just raucous. It was the entire place was electric, and I really do think that. Michigan just could not get into a rhythm. I thought that it seemed to me like they were trying to do, they were trying to force the ground game a little bit too much. I, I coming into this game, Michigan's 
Michigan with that more kind of like spread look, their running game has been a bit up and down. And I know I'm a I think Zach Charbonnet is a good back. I think Hassan Haskins is a nice little compliment to him to continue with bigger physical backs and Shea Patterson can run a little bit. And as I look through the play by play for the first quarter and a half for Michigan, it's a lot of run for two yards, run for no yards, you know, stop behind the line scrimmage, that sort of thing. And I think that as Michigan was struggling to get anything going on the ground, that just put a little bit too much on Patterson. And even though there were plenty of situations where he was able to convert with his arm, uh, Michigan's receiving core is a bad matchup for Penn State because they're just big, fast, and physical guys. I, like, I think that that was... You know, they just couldn't get anything really going. And for Penn State, its entire thing under James Franklin has been the ability to get into a rhythm and continue in a rhythm. And I think... That works for both sides of the ball. We definitely saw that on defense at the start of the game. We saw that on offense. Once it was able to get into a position where it was getting those big plays, I mean, the first uh, touchdown drive, 37-yard pass to Jahan Dotson, followed by a 17-yard pass to Sean Clifford. Second touchdown drive had a 44-yard run by Ricky Slade. And then the third touchdown uh, was K.J. Hamler for 25 yards, and there was a 32-yard uh, throw before that. So all these things come together, and Penn State was playing its game. Penn State was approaching this game the way that it wants to approach every single game, which is it's not gonna, it'll get beaten a few times defensively, but it's not going to get beaten consistently defensively, and its offense is going to be able to make big plays. And even if Sean Clifford throws a few incompletions, or even if the running game goes for one or two yards when they keep it on the ground, it's never going to be to the point that it like jeopardizes them because they always have that big playability within them. And for me, as we get into where these issues came from over the course of the rest of the game, I mean, Penn State scored a touchdown with uh, seven minutes and 22 seconds left in the second quarter. And then they went three and out, three and out, four, started the second half, was four plays for 12 yards, three and out, three and out, touchdown. They really fell into a funk, mat, And I think that a lot of it goes back to uh, the emphasis on being in a rhythm and being able to keep going. I like the point that you made about how things would have felt a little bit more inevitable if it was 28 to 7 and... And you and I are soccer fans. You know the old adage, the most dangerous thing in soccer is a two-score, two-nothing lead because you get complacent, you allow the goal, suddenly you're, you know, the other team has that renewed life, your team gets starts to hear footsteps, that sort of thing. That kind of happened with Penn State. What do you kind of diagnose as the reason for the issues during, you know, basically that half-hour stretch between touchdowns? Well, I think... You know, I meant I touched on it a little bit, and I think it's a big part of it is they just they weren't making the plays they were making in the first half, and I think part of that is I'm sure Michigan made some adjustments that you know allowed them to get to Clifford a little bit more. Um, I think part of that is you know a uh, a first time starting quarterback, and you know he's in his just his seventh game. Um, I, I mentioned this to someone earlier today that I think we kind of take for granted how good Trace was early in his career 
um, and how quickly some things kind of came to him after that, that slow start. Um, but even if you go back and look at some of his numbers from that first year, um, there are some, you know, 14 of 25 kinds of games or worse, you know, completion percentage wise. Um, but I think he was a little more able to, to mask some of that was the running ability. And that's still a work in progress for Clifford. I think we've seen flashes of it. They've been inconsistent, you know, some games that looks like it's kind of coming together and others, it doesn't. Um, I think a big part of it is as an offensive strategy and offensive mindset, trying to figure out what the right um, mix of staying aggressive, but also playing with that big lead. Um, I think we talk a lot about, yeah, they had the three score lead. They had the three score lead for all of them. What five minutes or so, whatever it took Michigan to go down and respond to the the 21, nothing touchdown. They scored on that next drive. So the offense never really got to play with that three score lead. Um, and, and who knows what effect that, that first Michigan touchdown had on, on the play calling, on the mindset of a, a still a pretty young offense at, a, at quite a few spots. Um, but I think they struggle, and this has been an ongoing issue for, for three years now, um, or four years really, um, into the fourth year, of how do we play with these leads? We want to be aggressive. We want to you know, not take our foot off the gas, but we also want to to play with a mindset that we need to control the ball. We need to give our defense. Um, we can't keep running them out there. I think the time of possession ended up, you know, almost 40 minutes to 20, almost two to one. Um, and I think the one thing I keep coming back to with respect to all of that is you have an offense that's completely predicated on taking what the defense gives you. And like we've talked, said a couple of times, Michigan's defense gives you that big play one-on-one. And I, I haven't had a chance to go back and look, but I'm guessing if you look at a lot of those three and outs over the third quarter, especially there was a lot of first down passes that were either incomplete or led to um, scrambles or sacks on, of Clifford. Um, and that put them in the hole and they would try and run to be conservative and not, you know, try and make the three and out or, or try, try and, um, you know, bleed a little bit of clock. And then that, that second down running play would lead to third and long. And then that third and long was unsuccessful. Um, and it was kind of this ongoing issue for what five or six series there in the third quarter before they got the, the fourth touchdown. Um, and you know, looking at the drive chart here, the defense hung in there really well until late in the third quarter, they forced, um, back-to-back punts for Michigan. They moved the ball a couple times, but they still, still got the punts. Um, the offense just couldn't do anything. That first series, two minutes, 11 seconds, that second series, a minute, third series, a minute, 27, um, and then they get the touchdown um, on the the big play to to Hamler right after Michigan makes it twenty eight or twenty one fourteen. So um, offensively, it it just feels like they're caught in between almost, which is obviously not a great place to be. Um, you know, we've spent a lot of time um, off the podcast talking about you know the running game in particular and Noah Kane and how does he factor in. Um, none of the backs really had a whole lot of carries. And I think you're not going to get a, a, a clear answer from the staff on this, but I'm really curious how many of the 11 carries that Clifford got credited with. Um, obviously, a couple of those are scrambles and sacks, but how many of those runs that were 
almost looked like a design run where him making a read and either the read not um, playing out the way it was supposed to or making the incorrect read. Um, but regardless of who the running back that was in there was, they never really got into a rhythm with any of those guys. Um, mm-hmm. And part of that, too, is they didn't have the ball a whole lot. Um, it's kind of kind of this vicious circle. You know, they weren't able to control the ball because they, you know, they weren't running it, and they weren't able to give the running backs more opportunity to touch the ball because they weren't um, main, they're sustaining drives in the second half. And really, in the first half, they weren't. They were relying on the big play like they did – um, like this offense really has for the most part, and now it's fourth year. Um, and the big, just to interject here, the big play thing, it's interesting because that's the thing that Michigan will concede. Like Michigan, like you mentioned a second ago, is going to say, listen, we believe in the speed and physicality and aggressiveness and skill of the various guys that we have on defense. We believe that we are going to be able to get to your quarterback before one of your receivers is able to get open. There were a few, like there was the uh, the long touchdown pass to KJ Hamler when he, I think it was Josh Metellus, who is an outstanding, outstanding football player, just got burned. Like KJ just got back there. He got one step and he was gone. And there was just nothing that Michigan could have done about that. But there was also, there was another one where Clifford has KJ Long. He overthrows it a bit. Uh, KJ, I didn't think, looked particularly comfortable going up uh, and having to catch it in, in, uh, with two defenders around him, and it just ends up hitting him in the face mask. Then there was the one where he just overthrew Jahan. Literally, if Jahan Dotson is able to take one more step, he's catching that in stride, and he's going for six. Like All this stuff, they were doing what Michigan wanted them to do, and you can make the argument that, or not what Michigan wanted them to do, Michigan was willing to let them do, and you can make the argument that you need to be able to find a way to uh, not get caught up in what they want you to do. But it was working, and it ended up leading, that mentality ended up leading to their 28 points, Matt, but it also played a major role in why they weren't able to get anything going for such a massive stretch in the middle of that game. Oh, for sure. I think that leads right into the what happened in the defense. I think it's pretty simple. You know, it's a defense that was just gassed. Um, this is a defense that's tackled really, really well all year. Um, I thought there were a few situations. There's a Cam Brown play that stands out to me, a Jaquan, Jaquan Brisker play that stands out to me, where guys were probably a little too aggressive and didn't take the best angle and, and ran themselves out of an opportunity to make a tackle. But for the most part, um, the plays that weren't made on the defensive side to my eye, looked like guys that just were were exhausted because they were out there quite a bit, especially in the second half. Um, and it's it's the the two at the two the the what's the word I'm looking for? It's the challenge with when you rely on the big play like Penn State traditionally has with this offense. You're going to lead to a, it's going to lead to a defense that's on the field a little bit more, mm-hmm. and. Um, Saturday night was kind of the, the the prototypical example of that because that's what Michigan gives you. And I, I think what changed for Michigan's offense, other than facing that defense that was you know, getting more and more gas as the game went on, was they didn't turn the ball over. Their, their biggest issue all year has been fumbling and, and losing the fumble. They only had the one turnover, the, the interception, um, in the first half. Which... Um, was one of the weirdest interceptions. Like, 
that is a play that is designed so you cannot throw an interception on it. And Tariq Castro Fields just did something completely ridiculous. Yeah, I think Herbstreit is the one that diagnosed it really well early that he recognized the play. I'm guessing a lot of that, like Herbstreit said, goes back to film study. Um, but I, at the risk of overly simplifying this, I think the the second half issues are are pretty simple. They weren't able to hit the plays that Michigan's defense was giving them, compounded by an offense that just lost its rhythm and really couldn't figure out the balance between that aggressiveness and um, managing the game and the trickle-down effect of a defense that couldn't get off the field um, because they kept getting more and more exhausted. They just weren't getting much more than a couple minutes of game clock off the field before they were going right back out there. And eventually that's going to build up on you, especially with a Michigan offense that, um, even with Josh Gaddis running things, is still run first, um, physical. They're not, you know, they only threw the ball downfield the one time, really, I think. They're not built, or at least not trying to be an offense that tries to beat you down the field. And I think you get hit more and more times, you're going to feel it, you know, in the third and fourth quarter. It was kind of what Mm -hmm. you saw um, from Penn State's offense against Iowa last week with Noah Kane running the ball um, to, to kill the clock in the fourth quarter. Well, I, I have the time and possession stats up right here. Michigan had the ball for 37 minutes and 45 seconds compared to 22 minutes and 15 seconds for Penn State, which is um, bad. Uh, while Michi- I mean, Michigan has had a, some pretty serious offensive issues this year, the one thing that they absolutely can do when they are cooking is wear you down. They have a big physical offensive line that, that has had some issues this year, but I thought they played pretty well uh, this week. I, I'm trying to find it right here. I don't believe Patterson got sacked, or he might have only gotten sacked one. He got sacked one time, and it was by Garrett Taylor on a blitz. So that Penn State pass rush wasn't quite getting home. That's a testament to their offensive line being able to push him around a bit while Zach Charbonnet and Hassan Haskins weren't able to really, I, I mean, they had a half, uh, Charbonnet specifically had a few nice carries. They were still getting taken down for one, two, three yards a lot of the time. That still takes a toll with how big and physical those guys are. That's going to lead to a worn down Penn state defense, especially with how much they were on the field. Penn Michigan's receivers have had their issues this year. But when you look at just how big these guys are, Nico Collins, 6'4", 222, uh, Nick Eubanks, their tight end, 6'5", 256, Donovan Peoples-Jones, 6'2", 208, uh, Tarek Black, 6'3", 215. They're bigger physical dudes. What they, what I, it seemed like they really wanted to do was keep that Penn State defense out for as long as possible and just be physical with them. And I think they did that, and it worked for the most part. They outgained Penn State 417 yards to 283 yards. I mean, Shea Patterson has had plenty of issues. I mean, his game reminded me of a... Um, not in terms of production, but in terms of he just looked like he was comfortable in a way that he wasn't always comfortable. Like Devin Gardner back when Michigan and Penn State played in 2013. I know Gardner put up much better numbers, but Patterson didn't look as troubled as he has been at times this season. He looked a little more 
he looked like he was a little more in control than usual. And it all just added up. And I think this leads to the conversation that everyone listening to this podcast, if you're listening to a car, if you're listening uh, while you're going on a run, if you're listening at work, you're probably banging uh, your dashboard or your desk or something going, well, if Penn State isn't able, Penn State is having trouble keeping Michigan's offense off the field. Playing a more ball control style of ball would have been smart. That means being able to run the ball more. And when you look at Penn State's running backs, that means Noah Kane. That means getting him the more physical, the more one-cut, the more decisive running back on the field. I don't disagree with that, Matt. I think there's a lot of merit to that. And I admittedly have some questions about why it seemed like Kane's usage was... um, Kane's usage appeared to be down compared to what we would have expected after back-to-back 100-yard games. Where do you, where did you basically stand on that? Well, I, I, it's, a, it's the obvious question. Um, you know, How does the guy that's been the primary back, really when you look at the number of carries over the previous two games, how is he, he not getting more, more serious? I think he was only in for two series. Um, he led all running backs with five carries, but when you're going up against guys ahead um, one, three and four with Devin Ford, Ricky Slade and journey Brown in that order. Um, it's not exactly um, a huge number. Um, they only had, you know, you take out KJ Hamler's two rushes and the three kneels at the end. They only ran the ball. Um, I'm going to have to do math here real quick in my head, 24 times. Um, and they threw the ball 25 times. They only ran 49 meaningful plays. Once you take the kneels out of it, and I'm, that's part of it. You know, you don't have a lot of opportunity. Um, it's it's bizarre. I, they're they're so committed to this rotation, and it, it certainly has its merits. It keeps all four guys fresh. It in theory gives you. We've talked about it before. Four backs who are really all quite different. Um, we saw, for lack of a better term, vintage Ricky Slade with the um, the big forty four yard run that set up the. Uh, that was the third touchdown that one set up. I can't keep him straight. Um, you know, one of the most explosive plays of the night for Penn State. Um, I don't think it's a pass protection thing. We saw Slade miss on a, a, a blitz pickup um, in the second half. I can't remember which series that was off the top of my head. Um, I think Noah Kane actually had a really good blitz pickup on um, maybe it was the Friermuth touchdown. I can't remember for sure. Um, so yeah, I don't think it's that. If I think I may, it's uh, the. I know exactly the play you're talking about. It happened the drive after Michigan scored to make it 28-21. Penn State then comes out. And this was, like, I'm not a fire Ricky Ronnie person. Like, I think that that's, I think going there is trying, is going to an extreme to try and solve a problem that isn't quite as bad as people might make it out to be, even though, again, the low points that we've seen out of this offense have been pretty bad. But that was one drive where I was like, all right, what the hell are we doing? Because that started with a swing pass to Ricky Slade for a loss of four yards. Then Slade completely missed on a Cameron McGrone blitz that ended up getting to Clifford immediately. Uh, And then third and 19, it was just, let's give Blake Gilligan a little bit more room to boot it. So that... That was weird to me. Like, I thought after Michigan scored a uh, nine-play, 75-yard drive, uh, there was 8.48 left in the game. That was a drive where I thought they really should have gone to Noah Kane 
just so they can give the defense a little bit more time to, you know, compose themselves. They went with Ricky Slade, but yeah, I'm sorry for interjecting there. I was just, uh, I, I thought the timing of putting Slade in on that one kind of deserved some mention because it was a bit curious to me. And it's, I think it goes back to a little bit of this catch 22. Like I was saying, you've got, um, you know, you only had 49 offensive snaps because you couldn't control the ball. Well, why aren't you putting the guy out there that theoretically is going to give you a better chance to have that, you know, more of a quote unquote power running game. Um, I don't, I'm with you. I, this is not, you know, fire the coach, you know, start over, burn it all down. Um, I don't know. Um, I don't, don't think either of us really know bill who, whether it's, you know, Ronnie and Franklin are deciding on playing time. If it's Jawan Sider as the running backs coach divides, how they're going to break up series. Um, we've talked a lot about, um, actually we probably haven't talked a lot about it, but it, it was one of those things that was brought up when Sider came in that he's a guy that likes to rotate guys more than um, his predecessor, Charles Huff did. Um, he also doesn't have um, a Saquon Barkley or a Miles Sanders that are just light years better than the other guys. You know, I always like to say these guys, you know, these coaches are seeing all four of these guys in practice every day. They're talking to them. They know, you know, what each of them does well, what each of them is, is working to improve on. Um, the fact that Noah Kane has, has led the team in carries um, the two previous games and was the guy at Iowa um, certainly is telling, you know, he's the, he, he's a guy they trust. He's, um, you know, out there in, in the biggest moments of that game. Um, it's, it's, it's strange. They're, they're, like I said, they're so committed to rotating all four guys that I think sometimes it's almost like an outsmarting yourself sort of situation where, you know, this is our plan. We're so committed to our plan. We aren't going to deviate from the plan. Um, and I think part of that goes back to what I was saying about the offense in general. This, our plan is to, to stay aggressive and, and, and try to throw over the top on the Michigan defense because that's what they give us and not, adjusting the plan to, you know, that 21, nothing lead or that late game situation where you, you have a two score lead and, and you're better served by running the clock. It's just, um, I think part of it is still fi- is finding their way as an offense. You've got a lot of new parts, um, obviously new quarterback trying to figure out what you are. Um, and you're, you're going against the, you know, second straight week, a really good defense that, um, among other things is really, really good at stopping the run. So um, it's, it's a, 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 an easy question to ask with a, a, probably a complex answer to figure out the right way to do it. And um, yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm going to repeat myself again. It's, it's bizarre. It's strange to, to see what he was able to do. Noah Kane in the, the Iowa game, especially, but even against Purdue late to, to kind of, um, get the offense back on track in that game. And then all of a sudden he's just not really a factor at all. I I do wonder if they think that maybe Kane might be kind of antithetical to how they want the offense to work. I know Kane is the between the tackles guy. He's the uh, four or five, four or five yard carry yards on various carries guy. He's not the guy who, I mean, when you look at the other running backs, Kane, if memory serves, and I'm double-checking this right now, he's the only guy who hasn't, like, just busted out one super long carry this year. Uh, if you give me two seconds, Kane's long is 27 yards. Uh, 
Journey Browns is 85, Devin Ford is 81, and then we saw the 44-yarder from Ricky Slade this past weekend. There, there's a little thing in the back, voice in the back of my head that says that's it. Uh, obviously, I don't know that. Uh, but I do wonder, in a more plausible explanation, if they are convinced that the best approach for Kane, uh, it's something that uh, other Matt has mentioned on the podcast, which is just put him at, you basically have him run an entire defense. Uh, you have him run through arm tackles. You have him, uh, when guys are huffing and puffing, you then have him come in as kind of battering ram, which was probably, if they believe that, wasn't the best approach <laughs> when Michigan's defense was on the field for 22 minutes during that game. Uh, but it, it's all hands up in the air. I think you and I definitely agree we'd like to see a little bit more of him. Uh, I believe he only got something like three or four series, which, considering what he had done the past two weeks, seemed like a seemed a bit off. But yeah, I'm, I'm looking at one more thing here. He, he leads all running backs in in carries on the year. Mm-hmm. He's got 62. Next in line is Journey Brown has 39. So. He's clearly, and that's a lot of that's the the Purdue between the Purdue and the Iowa games where he really um, cemented himself as as the top carries guy. Um, Sean Clifford leaves the team with seventy carries, and obviously yeah. you have sacks and scrambles that are factored into that. And it goes back to something that we were kind of chatting about earlier, Bill. The the RPO and making that read. And I wonder, and this isn't a Noah Kane specific thing, but I wonder how many of those Sean Clifford carries are ones, and we've we've seen it. He's he's certainly broken out some big plays um, on the read, but there's been plenty where it looks like he's missed, and there's been an opening for one of the backs to make a big play, whether it be around the outside or or whatever. Um, I wonder how many of those seventy Sean Clifford carries are, you know, is it is it twenty? Is it is it thirty that could have gone to a running back that jump bumps all those numbers up and in theory, if he's making the right read and those guys have a better opportunity to make to, to make a big play, you know, how does that impact the overall rushing numbers? And that's something, again, we're not going to get a, a clear answer from anyone because that's not what any coach is going to do is, you know, you know, break down, you know, yeah, on 20% of our runs, the quarterback's making the wrong read, obviously. Yeah, and I, I wonder just throwing that out there in, into the universe is, you know, a possible explanation for some of these skewed numbers to some degree. Yeah, and I, it's something that I think it, it'll be interesting to monitor against Michigan State because I think we can probably say with some amount of confidence that what Michigan State's going, Michigan State's going to try to do a lot of what Michigan did on offense, which is just be really strong, really physical, really solid. I well, Michigan State on defense, apologies. They're going to try and do all that stuff, and they're going to basically tell Penn State, we don't want you running on us. And I don't know. I mean, we saw Saquon Barkley struggle with that. We saw uh, Miles Sanders struggle with that. It, it's hard to run on how Michigan State is going to scheme their defense. And I just, I, I just wonder if maybe next week we see a little bit more Noah Kane than usual, because you can't go into a game against Michigan State's defense and assume that you're going to get big plays. The best way, some, sometimes the best way to run the ball against a defense like Michigan State is just battering ram it and hope, you know, hope that works. And if you can keep consistently getting four yards a carry against Michigan State, that's that's good. So that's something that has me a little bit curious. Uh, do you have, 
as we look back on this game, I mean, we kind of touched on the game itself, but let's just kind of go to a more overarching look at this, Matt. What do you think the biggest lesson is that we can take away from this game against Michigan? Uh, again, one where Penn State looked like it was going to cruise, and then whether they took their foot off the gas, whether uh, the car stalled out, whatever it is, it got a little bit interesting late. Yeah, I think it's... Um... I don't know if there's one overarching lesson. I guess the one thing I keep coming back to is, especially with a young team like Penn State, is that confidence goes such a long way. And this is the the second straight week they've closed out a game. And this one certainly was way more um, soul-crushing and nerve-wracking than, than the Iowa game, where it never really felt like it was going to get away from this one. Certainly did. You know, They were a drop ball in the end zone. Um, by Ronnie Bell away from from tying it up and, and likely going to overtime. But they still they, – they put Michigan into a situation where they had to make that play, and they didn't. And they they found a way to win a game that they've lost several times going back to the 2016 Rose Bowl. Um, I guess it was 20, technically 2017, but the USC Rose Bowl in the 2016 season, um, they found a way to, to hang on. And I think you go back or you, you look ahead and you can draw on that, okay, we know we can do this. We've done it. You know, they're going to face that situation, you know, maybe as soon as this weekend against a pretty similar Michigan State defense to what Michigan rolls out as far as mindset and, and style and whatnot. Um, but I think in in close situation in close game situations you have some experience the draw on that hey we can we can win these games um and like i said this confidence just goes such a long way for for any football team but especially a young one um they're going to need that i feel especially this coming weekend their third straight big game this one doesn't feel as big as the last two but the the michigan state monkey is is certainly well documented over over the, especially the last two years um i think that in and of itself is helpful but um, you know, this is a 7-0 football team. At the end of the day, I, I channel James Franklin. Winning is good and winning is fun and winning should be celebrated. And they've won seven times this year. They haven't lost one. Um, they're a good football team. I think they're, they're solidly in that, that group right outside the, the top five quote unquote elite teams in the country at this point. Um, so I don't know if that's a lesson per se, but I think it's, it's something that will help going forward, if that makes sense. Yeah, it's. I think the optimist take is that they didn't play like for such a long stretch in this game. They were just so ineffective on offense, and they were so worn out on defense, and yet they were still able to win the game. Like I think that that's how an optimist would probably look at it, and. This team has shown some flaws, and yet it has still managed to find a way to be 7-0 on the season, uh, ranked number 6th in college football, back-to-back wins over ranked teams. There have been some moments where it looks really, really, really good. Um, 8th in SP+. We talked before the pod a little mad about how there are, I think, four or five teams that are in the top 20 of offense, defense, and special teams in SP+. That's Ohio State, that is Georgia, that is Penn State, 
that is Florida. And there might be one other team. I don't quite remember off the top of my head. But, like, that's – they're a very well-rounded football team. And this is despite the fact that we have seen such major flaws from them with a first-year quarterback, with a young, young football team. Uh, I want to give a hat tip uh, to Tyler Donahue of Lions 24-7. Penn State's touchdown numbers through seven games, one senior, one junior, I mean, one by a senior, one by a junior, 23 by sophomores, and 11 by freshmen. Like, there's just so much room for growth here. And I think we saw a team that had to learn some stuff and figure some stuff out on the fly against Michigan. Uh, there were moments where they were successful in doing that. There were moments where they were not so successful in doing that. But if they can get past Michigan State next week and... You know, if you want to say body blow theory, if you want to say uh, Mark D'Antonio has been a thorn in the side of James Franklin for years, you want to say going to East Lansing is tough. Uh, if you want to say that Michigan State, like this is just a situation coming off a bye where, coming off a bye, I believe two losses in a row where they usually find a way uh, to muck up a game and then win said game with the more experienced quarterback. Like, I agree with all that to one extent or another. Uh, there's just so much working against Penn State next week, but they've also learned enough that if they can win that game, they look like things are shaping up very nicely for them to have that bye week as a chance to rest up and grow and then have a very manageable schedule down the stretch, save for that trip to Columbus. And that, I, those games against Minnesota and Indiana are going to be hard, but neither here nor there. Things like this team is pointing in the right direction, and this is a good chance for them to learn from some mistakes that they might have made, iron out some wrinkles, all of that. And I think that despite the fact that it was an ugly loss, there's still reason for to be optimistic. Uh, one thing I want to discuss before we uh, tie a bow on this one and go around the Big Ten was the play of Sean Clifford. Um, he had a very weird box score. Uh, he accounted for all four of Penn State's touchdowns, three with his arm, uh, one with his legs, but 14 for 25 and 182 yards through the air, 11 for 17, 11 carries for 17 yards on the ground. What did you make of the performance that we saw out of Sean Clifford, Matt? I thought it was uneven um you know we've talked a lot about the plays that that were not made i think there were some missed reads in the run game um but the the best thing i can say about him and i've said this on a previous podcast and it almost sounds um like a like a negative but he's been an unbelievable game manager in that he's taking care of the ball um he's thrown i think just the two interceptions all year um there's been a couple early issues on the the um, handoff um, ball security on, on the read. But in general, he's he hasn't done anything that has put Penn State directly in a position to um, to lose a game. It's it's taking care of the ball, um, and he's made the plays when they've needed to be made. Um, obviously, the next step now is to just become more complete, more consistent, you know, hitting that play to Dodson, hitting that long pass to Hamler, um, you know, making that right read, whether to keep or hand off more consistently. Um, and rather than being a reason that Penn State doesn't lose games, he becomes the reason that Penn State is winning games or Penn State is, is you know, 
winning this Michigan comfortably or pulling away from Pitt earlier in the year. Um, I've said it a couple of times already. He is still just a redshirt sophomore that has started seven games and is seven and zero in those starts. And um, it's not the best stat to evaluate a quarterback, but he's seven and zero as a starter, and that certainly says a lot about I think what he's provided. Um, it's just going to be continuing to grow, and I think in my mind it's almost survive one more week against Michigan State because he's going to face another really really mm-hmm. good defense. Um, we saw how good he looked out of the bye against Maryland, and certainly Maryland is not not any of the three teams they've played in the last, you know, County Michigan State in, in the last three straight games, and really isn't even Minnesota or Indiana that they'll see out of the bye week. But I think it's a chance for a young quarterback to kind of refocus, get his feet under him, have a chance to, I almost say, get back to the fundamentals of of what he does. Um, you get so ingrained in game prep and preparing for what you're going to face that week that inevitably some of those things that are fundamental to your position just get lost. Um, And I think getting that bye week will allow that to happen. Like we saw into the Maryland game. Um, But I thought given the, the competition faced and um, you, you can't discount how good he was so early. Um, You know, he, was just absolutely dominant um, with the deep ball so on the money. Um, he, Penn State was up 21 nothing, and he was a huge, huge part of that. Um, it's easy to focus on the, the second half of the game where that wasn't the case, but um, you can't discount how really, really good he was early. Um, and it just gives you flashes of, of what's to come as he continues to grow and gain confidence and, and more is given to him by the coaching staff. It's one of those things where – the good stuff shows you what he can be and the bad stuff shows you that he is still young. And as he develops, as he gets more experience, as he gets more comfortable, it's going to lean more towards what he can be as opposed to where he's at right now. And I think that's, that's an exciting thing. Um, I was a little bit, uh, I, I donn't want to say, uncomfortable, but I did think that when Michigan was able to knock him out of his rhythm uh, as a passer and as a thrower, that was basically the way that they were able to get back into the football game. Uh, I would, I, I want to see him see the running backs run more. And I don't know if that's on him when they're doing those RPOs or if that's on play calling or what it might be. But if it is an RPO thing, I'd like to see him uh, give a little bit more love to the backs and then throwing the football I think we can sometimes uh, forget this, but throwing footballs very far down the field is a difficult thing, and it's not something that you're supposed to be consistently good at unless you are an NFL player. And I don't, well, I'm not going to sit here and say he is or he is not, but we see the moments where he is able to uncork those beautiful looping, like the. One to Hamler on the final touchdown was just a master class. But we're going to wait. We're going to see him get better at all that stuff. I have no doubt about this. I think he had an okay game, um, which is funny because, again, he accounted for all four touchdowns. But there was there were just things I wanted to see him do a little bit better. And I thought that, oh God, I can't forget 
that, what drive it was, but he had Pat Fryer with wide open middle of the field, and he just missed him completely. And I, like, he threw it to Pat, and he just threw it over his head, and that's something that you can't really do. Like, once he starts getting those mistakes out of this, his game, I think that 14 for 25 for 182 yards is going to end up looking a bit more impressive. But the fact that he already has the touchdowns is like, I can't complain too terribly much. So I think considering where I expected him to be, I, I probably expected him to be a little bit less confident of a runner, which, you know, not taking away from his ability to run the football. It's just that's a lot to put on a young player. I expected him to be a lot more turnover prone just because young guys tend to be turnover prone. But he's managed to avoid that pretty well. And like you mentioned, Matt, if he can get past that game against Michigan State next week, which it, it is a tiny bit funny that we keep talking about that being an if he can get past it because Michigan State uh, – 28th in SP plus, 72nd in offense, 11th in defense, and 80th in special teams. In terms of rankings, they're very similar to Michigan, uh, just a little bit worse at everything. So that's th this next hurdle. If he can get past it, I'm very, very confident for what he's going to do down the final four games of the season. The one thing that I this could be totally off off the mark, but one of these things that I've been thinking about leading into this game this coming weekend is he's facing a defense that's a lot more similar to what he just saw. Um, Michigan and Iowa, both very effective defenses, but they go about it so differently. Michigan State and Michigan certainly are identical, but they're a lot more similar than Michigan and Iowa are. And you wonder, both from a, a player standpoint and just a coaching standpoint, how much that factors into game planning and, um, you know, prepping for what you're going to see um, and what you want to do offensively. Uh, Michigan State's a little bit more zone than Michigan is. Um, is probably the biggest difference, but you know, really aggressive up front, really good front seven. Um, mm -hmm. I think Michigan State's secondary is probably a little bit more susceptible than, than Michigan's is, but you're splitting hairs to some degree there. Um, I, I'm going to be curious to see how, how much overlap you see in game planning from, from last week to this week. Um, and how Clifford responds to it without having to go from, you know, a Iowa team that rushes four, maybe five, drops six or seven in the coverage, plays zone, keeps the play in front of them, and then almost the exact opposite in a really aggressive um, Don Brown's bringing five, six, seven guys every play, putting guys on an island, daring you to beat him one-on-one. -on -one. Um, just a totally different mindset. And to go from those two extremes – in back-to-back -back weeks for a, a young quarterback has to be, I would think some sort of a, a, a challenge. Um, that's not going to be the case as much this week. So something for me to keep an eye on, I guess. I, I certainly, I mean, we're, we're getting a bit ahead of ourselves, but Michigan state's front seven, <sighs> they got some dude, like the Panishuk brothers, uh, Raekwon Williams, Kenny Willekes, Joe Bocci, like they are, they are all guys in that front seven. Well, in that entire defense, they have one guy who isn't a junior, a redshirt junior, a senior, or a redshirt senior. Like, it is a veteran defense. It is a confident defense. It's going to, th like, Michigan threw a lot of stuff at, Michigan was in a position to throw a lot of stuff at 
Clifford because they just have the kind of raw talent that gives you the luxury of being able to throw a lot of stuff at a young quarterback. What Michigan State has is they have experience. They have guys who have played together, who have, uh, you know, who know one another's tendencies, you know, like, like the back of their hand. That's going to be a really interesting challenge for Clifford to have to, uh, have to navigate. Now, the hope is that they don't, since they don't have the, again, the raw, the speed and the physicality and all that stuff. Well, I don't want to say it because they're good football players, but they don't have the five, star, four and five stars that Michigan's defense has at a lot of positions. Penn State's going to be able to maybe use its speed a little bit more, but we'll see. It's going to be a, it's going to be a very interesting game, and it's one that I think that Penn State, if all goes right, has the potential to win it a little bit more comfortably than past games against Michigan State. But if it wasn't Michigan State, I would feel a lot more confident about that. Uh, I think that's all for the Penn State against Michigan game. Let's get into Big Ten play, Matt. Um, Start off with Friday night's uh, Fox Sports uh, BTN extravaganza between Ohio State and Northwestern. I don't think there's much we can say about Ohio State that we haven't already uh, they won 52 to three. The bigger thing to me is that Northwestern should just like get rid of football. Like I, I do not see a reason for Northwestern to have a football program anymore. Matt, are you there? Matt, your mic is muted. Oh, hi there. I, I I'm, sneezed I'm, and I, I did not unmute the mic. I am not cutting this. That is the second time in as many years that I've done that. But um, I, I saw a stat on Twitter today that compared Northwestern and Rutgers. And if you're even oh, compared no. to Rutgers and anything football-related, it, it can't be a good thing because Rutgers doesn't do anything well. Um, I saw none of this game. I was at uh, my future sister-in-law's wedding on Friday night. But um, I looked up and saw the score was 31-3 at halftime and it's kind of you know, nodded. And that's about right. Yeah. I, it, it's weird because like I don't... Every reason that I hate Northwestern is just philosophically, I think Pat Fitzgerald is like, I think he goes out of his way to hurt his football team by not trying to, uh, you know, by comparing RPOs to communism or whatever. Uh, so the fact that they were they were playing hosts at night to uh, Ohio State and they got like, just destroyed, like, off the face of the planet type stuff that made me, that made me pretty happy. Um, moving on. Speaking of making me pretty happy, Matt, Illinois twenty four, Wisconsin twenty three. The fight in Lovies get the big win that they've been champing at the bit for 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 so long. Did you get a chance to watch any of this one? Because I turned it on during the fourth quarter, and I was very surprised at how Wisconsin did everything in their power to lose this football game. I, I dozed off for a time during this one due to the Friday night wedding uh, previously mentioned. Um, so I did not see all of this, but I have pieced together what I didn't see. And I'm, I'm going to break just break this down to one play because I, I know Jonathan Taylor had, I think it was two fumbles on the game and you know, you're trying to, you know, the only way Wisconsin was going to lose that game was turning the ball over at midfield on that last drive and it was third and five or six, and I really, you know, it's not a gimme, 
but you've got the best running back in the country in your backfield, and you opt to throw the ball with Jack Cohn, who's having a good year, but he is a fine quarterback. The the only th- there were way more the, the chance of a really bad thing happening to Wisconsin was way higher with him putting the ball in the air than it was with Jonathan Taylor running the ball. Worst thing that happens with Jonathan Taylor is probably, you know, get stopped for a two or three yard gain and you punt the ball away and Illinois needs to go 60 yards to kick a winning field goal, which probably isn't going to happen. I'm just, it was strange. It was a strange game. Or he runs the ball for two or three yards and then it's fourth and two or three from Illinois' like 45 yard line. Like, Wisconsin football exists to be able to get two or three yards in that exact situation. So it, it was just a weird, like it was a weird approach to the end of the game. Uh, Wisconsin outgamed them four twenty to three fifteen. Brandon Peters, the Michigan transfer that they have a quarterback, went nine for twenty one, but threw for two scores. And then Reggie Corbin and Dre Brown are a very nice backfield. Like Illinois got a little bit lucky. I mean, they were able to turn all three Wisconsin turnovers into points, which is very difficult to do, but sometimes you need to be lucky. And Wisconsin might have been looking ahead to what was supposed to be uh, a showdown to end all showdowns next weekend with Ohio State, but good on Illinois. They've uh, that's a pro- they've needed that win for a while, and they got it. And speaking of programs that could really need a win, uh, Rutgers lost 42-7 to to Minnesota. I have nothing to add other than that is going to be a very tricky game when Penn State has to go to Minnesota. Uh, I will just add that it was really cool to see the uh, the backup quarterback mm-hmm. on Minnesota uh, come in and, and you know, hold on. I think it was the last extra point. The, was it a three- or four-time cancer survivor? Just really, really cool story. Scott Van Pelt talked uh, talked a bit about it on, on Saturday night. So um, good on the Gophers, but... Um, if Northwestern has to fold their football program, I don't know what Rutgers has to do. <laughs> Rutgers should be forced to exist. That, like, they should... There was a good piece on NJ.com um, where they got into, like, recruiting during Chris Ash's tenure um, at Rutgers. I highly recommend everyone goes and finds it. It is... Uh, the title is Rutgers is secretly polling high school coaches about Greg Schiano and other candidates. Here's what they're saying. It was written by Steve Politi. There was a section in there about how coaches who were local had never spoken to Chris Ash, even though they had like, even if they only had like one or two kids. And it was just so interesting to see that Rutgers isn't doing like extra work to get kids and that is exactly what Rutgers football deserves so um yeah I hope Rutgers exists in a perpetual state of just um complacency forever uh speaking of complacency forever uh Kirk Ferentz of the Iowa Hawkeyes beat Purdue 26 to 20 I didn't watch a second of this game Matt did you yeah, actually, I was flipping over quite a bit um, between all those noon games. Um, David Bell, former future Penn Stater, really, really good. Um, he is awesome. I, I'm looking here, 13 receptions, 197 yards, and a score. He is a freak. 
Um, and, and Jack Plummer, the freshman quarterback that uh, we saw against Penn State a couple of weeks ago, um, settling in. You're not a you know 327 yards, but on 50 passes. Um, Purdue's not great, and, and they certainly are even less than that without um, Rondale Moore. But this was a game they they were they hung around for most of the game. They were obviously you know in it at the end, down by just the one score. Um, you know, Iowa just it remains Iowa football to in every sense of the word. Um, they, they play Northwestern this weekend. There there might be four total points scored. Ugh. Uh, yeah, I'm not watching that. Uh, last game of the week, actually a pretty good one. Uh, Indiana 34, Maryland 28. It looked like this had the potential to be one of those games where Maryland just like is able to pull a win out of nowhere. Uh, Indiana got put into the weird situation where their starting quarterback, Michael Penix Jr., who is a he is good. He is like extremely good. He had to leave the game due to an injury. His backup, Peyton Ramsey, came in. Uh, Matt, I didn't expect this to happen. But as of right now, I think Penn State probably beats Indiana. Um, But I'm looking at the ESPN Gamecast. It has Penn State as about a 91% chance to win that game. I'm not sure that this is a really good Indiana team. Yeah, I'm I'm looking for the uh, the SP plus here. Um, they're 22nd 22, there. Yeah, they're they've got you know a really good offense as Indiana has kind of in perpetuity here. Um, they're 17th. They've got a solid defense, 41st nationally and 17th in special teams. Um, I think Penn State at home um, probably overmatches them. Just you know, out talents them to some degree. Um, it's, it's just a solid team. They got, um, you know, their two losses just absolutely blown out by Ohio State. But they put 31 up on Michigan State in East Lansing in defeat. Um, just couldn't stop Brian Lewerke, which just will remain Weird forever sentence. confounding to say. Um, but they're, they've they've done exactly what Indiana football needs to do, win the games that you're supposed to win. They've beaten Ball State, Eastern Illinois, UConn, uh, Rutgers, and now Maryland um, on the road at Maryland. And, you know, they did not go into an atmosphere like Penn State saw there last month, but um, going on the road and winning football games for teams in that kind of second tier like Indiana is never never a given in just about every case. Really curious to see what they look like this weekend at Nebraska. They're actually like a two or three point favorite in Lincoln. Um, but they've got they've got Nebraska and then they've got uh, Northwest or, yeah, Northwestern at home before a bye week before coming to Penn State. Um, curious to see what happens these next two weeks because for all of Northwestern's fault, their defense is still pretty solid. Um, Ohio State, 52 points notwithstanding. Um, and they have to go on the road for a second straight week to um, a just dysfunctional Nebraska team in, in a lot of ways. So um, I mean, they probably should be 7-2 and two heading to Happy Valley. And, mm-hmm. and like I said earlier, confidence for a football team does, does strange things. Um, and Penn State will be coming off um, what appears to be a tough road game in Minneapolis. So really getting ahead of ourselves here. Um, Yeah, it's it's a weird spot. If it was in Bloomington, I'd be really wary because weird things happen there. I would be terrified if that game was in Bloomington. Like, there is a non-zero chance that by the time Penn State plays them, Indiana is a ranked football team. Currently, Indiana sits at 
I, they got exactly one vote, I believe, in the coaches' poll. Um, they didn't get any in the uh, AP poll, but like they're a solid team. Uh, if you get a chance to check them out and he's healthy, I really think Michael Penix might be a star quarterback. He's completing around 70% of his passes, uh, 1,232 yards, 10 touchdowns, four interceptions, uh, sorting quarterbacks by passer rating in the Big Ten. Uh, he's It goes Justin Fields, Minnesota's quarterback, Sean Clifford, Jack Cohn, uh, then the injured Elijah Sindor, and then it's Penix. Like, he's a really good quarterback and in the backfield. If you haven't watched Stevie Scott, he might be the most violent running back in the conference. And then they have a really good receiver, a guy by the name of Wap Filer. Like, there is so much about this Indiana team to like that with where they are on the schedule, again, I think Penn State probably wins that game. I have no faith in them winning that game comfortably, and that says more I think about Indiana than it does Penn State. I'll, if there's anything you would like to add on the Hoosiers, Matt, this is your chance. I miss chaos team. Mm-hmm. I, it, I, we're obviously friends with the uh, with the lunatics over at Crimson Quarry, as longtime listener the listeners of this podcast uh, are aware. For their own sanity, I am glad that Indiana is better at football. Um, but it comes at the cost of knowing that every Indiana game would end like 49 to 38 with them losing. So that's um, good for them and bad for those of us who like dumb stuff. But yeah, I think that's it. Is there any, any final things to say about this weekend's game, Matt? This past weekend's game, not this upcoming weekend's game. Um, I would just say it's, and this is the optimist in me and, and Bill, you and I go back and forth all the time, but it's easy to forget given how the game went. But Penn State seven and zero. We we just talked about North or Wisconsin um, losing as a thirty one point favorite uh, just a week ago. Georgia lost as a big favorite at home to South Carolina um, when they, neither team played their best football. So um, outside of you know, the, the five teams we talk about all the time, um, if you don't come to play in any given week, just about any team's able to get you. And to Penn State's credit, they have they've found ways to win games despite really other than maybe the Maryland game having not put together a really complete performance to date. So um, lots of room to grow, lots of room to improve, and they're going to need to. But um, they're still seven and zero, and that's that's huge, obviously. They they have shown a lot of flaws, and I don't think I can blame anyone if they're worried that those flaws are the sorts of things that uh, could end up biting them in the rear end. But if they're able to learn from them, if they're able to grow from them, this Penn State team is the potential. I mean, there are reasons why right now we're talking about Penn State as maybe the favorite to make the Rose Bowl out of the Big Ten. So it's a. I certainly don't blame anyone for not feeling great after that Michigan game, but it certainly. Uh, this Penn State team appears to be in a pretty good spot. So hope y'all enjoyed this edition of the podcast as always make sure you're liking and subscribing uh leaving us a review on itunes of those five-star reviews if you do leave them they do help us a lot so please get on there uh please show us a little bit of love make sure you're following us on all of our various social media channels and then you keep reading and supporting the site and of course the best way to do that is to go out and buy some shirts uh 
Yeah, I, I think that's it for this week. Thank you one more time for listening to this edition of Roar Lions Radio from my co-host Matt DeBear. I'm Bill DeFilpo. Take care, everyone.